15. So we're going to put it up on the screen, I think. I think God, God's glory in hard times is our topic, and we're going to read Psalm 115. Does he have it? You ready? It's there. All right. I never quite know whether I'm standing blocking the screen, if I should stand over. It's always one of those, especially when you're a big guy like me, I'm like, can you see it? No, but anyway. Psalm 115. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is our, their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. They make no sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. You hear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth, from, from time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come into your presence and we thank you for your steadfast love and faithfulness. We thank you for a chance to come this morning and look at a portion of your word. We ask that it would bless us, that we would hear from Jesus, that we would hear from you, that we would know you better. Set aside my failings and my struggles that I might encourage your people this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Psalm starts out with, not, not to us, O Lord, but to your name give glory. I want us to think about glory for a few minutes this morning as we start because this is, in many ways, um, a, a very important aspect of what we believe as Christians. Um, the larger catechism, many of you know this, what's the chief end of man? Catechism, by the way, for those that may not know it, is a short question and answer thing to help you with different topics. And one of the, one of the questions that it says is, what is the chief end of man? And the purpose is that you can memorize that if you want to, so that you go, okay, I can think about that. And it summarizes a lot of things in Scripture. So, <clears throat> what is the chief end of man? It says to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's what we're supposed to be about. This is one of the unfailing goals of human history is that we are to glorify God. But when we come to that and we say, okay, how do you define glorifying God? It's a really hard thing to do. It's hard to come up with what does that mean. There are words that we can use like awesome, renown, magnificence, power, awe, overwhelming. The scripture has words like king of kings, lord of all lords. Those give us some sort of picture, but it's really hard to say, what does that mean? It's kind of like somebody, and I was thinking about this this week because of 
March Madness, if someone comes to you and says, define basketball for me, what's basketball? We can do that because it's something that we can say, okay, it's this kind of leather rubber ball and you blow it up and it's about, I don't know, 10 inches across and it's hard and you bounce it and you can throw it to other people and you run up and down the court bouncing it and there's this hoop and you throw it at the hoop and make it into the hoop and you score. And if someone's watching soccer, they'll go, that's not basketball. Okay? They may not know what soccer is, but they can say, that's not basketball or football. They know the difference. But when you say glory, it's kind of like beauty. You go, how do I describe beauty? There are words in the English language that we can use that we point to things and we go, that's beautiful, or that's beautiful, or, and we can kind of describe it and we can all have kind of a joint understanding of what that word is, but it's hard to just straight out define. And to me, the word glory is much like that. It's not something that we can say, here it is, but it's something that we can say, all right, we, we know what that's about. Um, so as I attempted to think, what is the glory of God? Here's a definition that someone gave. The glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of God's manifold perfections. And what that means is the beauty of all who he is. That's his glory. The infinite beauty. And we're focusing on the manifestations of his character, his worth, his attributes, the perfection of all that's beautiful that he has done and who he is. And Isaiah 6, verse 3, says this, the angels are crying, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his, and if you think they said holy, holy is the Lord, the whole earth is full of his, you would think it might be holiness. And this helps us kind of understand what glory is, because it doesn't say holy, holy is the Lord, the whole earth is full of his holiness, it says the whole earth is full of his glory. Holiness and glory are tied there where we say God is holy, holy, holy. And when it does it three times like that in Scripture, you know that that means it's emphasizing it. It's going, listen, listen, listen. This is what I want to say. And so the concept that God is holy in a class by himself, um, perfect, perfect and greatness in his worth, this is, uh, makes him a distinct category, something else, something indescribable. Holiness, the holiness of God, is something that no one else comes close to. God says, be holy like I am holy. But part of giving us that verse of saying we need to be holy like he is holy is that we know we can't do it on our own, and we need Jesus to help make us holy, that we cannot be holy in our own power. So our holiness only comes from trusting in Jesus alone for our salvation. The Shorter Catechism, once again, describes God as a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, and as wisdom, being, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. That's who God is. And we say this is incredible. In Leviticus 10.3, God says that he will be shown holy among all those who fear him, and all the peoples he will be glorified. I will be shown to be holy among the peoples. In other words, I will be glorified because of who I am. This comes over and over and over again in Scripture, that God is holy, and because of his holiness, we will give him glory. 
But as we think about that, and that's the normal way in which people describe holiness in theological studies and in Scripture. But it's interesting that that's not what we find here. Um, If you think that definition alone, that's not what we find. Let's look at verse 1 again. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Because of God's love and faithfulness. Another uh, translation, and you understand translations, just means that they looked at the original languages and they said, how do I define this word? Um, you, You know enough to know that in different languages, one word can be defined in another language different ways. It's like the Eskimos have 27 words for snow. And I'm a Floridian, I don't know what any of that means. Um, So they look at this word, and in this, in the version that we normally use, English, the English Standard Version, it's love and faithfulness. In other versions, it's mercy and truth. So I want us to think about that. What shows us love and faithfulness from God's word? What shows us mercy and truth? Ultimately, the answer comes back to Jesus. Where do we find mercy? Where do we find God's love? The ultimate expression of God's love is that Jesus would come and die for us. That Jesus would sacrifice himself for us. Where do we find truth? Where do we find faithfulness? The truth of all of God's word. In fact, Jesus said, I am the word, the truth and the life. And so this is personified... The the love and mercy, the truth and faithfulness of God is personified in Jesus Christ. And my question to you this morning, if you're here and you haven't experienced Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you won't understand what this means. But if you have, that should motivate you to say, wow, I want to glorify God. Not just because he's holy and not just because we we should fear him or that he's awesome or that he's all-powerful or that he's king of kings or that he's Lord of lords, but... He gave us a Savior. He sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. Because of that, we should say, we want to glorify him. Christ, the personification of God's mercy, Christ, the word of truth, makes us fall down and glorify God as human beings. And as a church plant, that's what we're about. Why do we come together? Is it because anybody that preaches is the best preacher ever? Probably not. Is it because we've got the best facilities in the whole world and we like being here because it's cool? Well, it's nice and we appreciate it, but probably not. Is it because we have the best public pastry? Well, no, that's not. Why? We come together because we're the people of God and we say we are here because God has shown us mercy. God has shown us love. God has shown us faithfulness. God has shown us truth. And we want to invite other people to be a part of that. Um, And so we're excited to be a part of that. But it's not just talking about glory. That first verse also has another part to it. It says, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Now, I don't know about you, but most people seek their own glory. It's an easy thing for us to do. In fact, as preachers, even at Presbyterian and other places, we talk about at times that even in preaching, you have to be careful that it's not about me and people looking at me and going, oh, that was great, and oh, that was wonderful. And I appreciate that. Usually when people say that to me, I say, if you stick to God's word and preach God's word, it should be a good sermon. Um, we should hear from Jesus, not from the preacher. 
But that's something that preachers struggle with, to say not to me, but to God we give the glory. Now, I think we see this aspect of taking glory all around us in the world. I mean, if you look at any position of power or prestige, people want to be glorified and lifted up, seen as special. Um, it was, we just saw a couple minutes of uh, the devil wears Prada the other day, just the part where the lady you know, goes, I don't want to be you. And the lady goes, everybody wants to be me. I'm famous. I'm important. I'm going, oh, that was, that's it right there, where she's recognizing that that's what's important in her life. Um, I have a pastor friend of mine who did one of those disc tests. I don't know if you've ever done those, but we had to do like 50 of them as missionaries to make sure we weren't crazy. Um, it didn't work. Okay, Brian, I'll just say that because I know you were thinking it. Um, but in that disc test, one of the things it does is it categorizes your personality and leadership. And uh, this pastor friend of mine was telling me that he came out as what they classified as the highest level of benevolent dictator. And he was like, I rocked the test. I scored the highest. And then he realized, wait a minute. I'm supposed to be a shepherd of God's people. I'm supposed to love God's people. I'm supposed to minister to God's people. I'm supposed to care for God's people. Here I am taking pride in the very opposite of what I'm supposed to be, just because I scored the highest. And it really, he had to confess that to us, that he was struggling with that. But when we look at this and we say we want to have God's glory, we want to be salt and light to the world around us. We want to point to the great king to ourselves. One of those questions I have is how does Vintage Grace do this? How do we as a church do this? Now, one of the opportunities to show this isn't about you but about others we have coming up, whether it's inviting people to Easter or doing the thing next Saturday, ways in which we serve. If you get up afterwards and you help break down chairs, you're saying, by the way, if you're here and you're a visitor, please don't run off. We like to talk to you and we like to meet you and get to know someone else. If you're here and you can't help with chairs because you're meeting a visitor, that's great. But we do, we do do service things like chairs or Kids Connection or next Saturday or inviting people to church on Easter because we want to point the glory to Christ. And it's not about us. Um, so we start out with this verse, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and faithfulness. But then the passage turns to what I call the problem. The problem comes in verse 2. Why should, the, why should the nation say, where is their God? Now, I don't know if you've ever faced this, but I think we face this in the, all around us in the world, where the news media, celebrities, Stephen Hawkins, whoever comes and says, I don't believe there's a God, where is your God? And we get questioned that way all the time, and that can be very hard for us to point the glory to God. And maybe that's even part of the reason why you invite somebody because you're afraid they might go, I don't believe in God or I don't know that God. And I don't trust that there is a God and all those kind of things. When we face that, what we're going to see is we go back to his faithfulness and his love and his mercy and his truthfulness say, no, there is a God. God, because he's acted in my life. But as we think about that, it's not just that the outside world says, where's your God? Um, it also has something internal. And I want to do it this way. It says in one of the, um, one of the versions, this says the nations. Um, one of the versions says the heathen. 
Um, why did the heathen say, how did the heathen say, where now is your God? Um, go back to Paul, and I think it's in Romans and other places, where he's talking about the struggle within us, that we have a heart of flesh, and we have a heart deemed and made alive by God, but then we also have part of our human nature that has fallen and dead in our trespasses and sins, and that struggle between those two nations or those two, the heathen part and the saved part, is within us. We have that struggle Paul talks about. And I didn't explain that very well, but I think you understand that concept that we have struggle in us. I think the hardest part of this passage is not when Stephen Hawkins goes, where's your God? Because I can go, Stephen, you may be smart, but you don't know anything about this subject. And you're, in fact, you're so smart that you're rebelling against God. He knows different now, but um, someone like that. But when we have it internally. And where that comes from, I think, is when we face suffering, when we face hard times in this life. Uh, I have a friend who, um, his wife, she's a friend too, but um, uh, she had breast cancer a number of years ago, and it's come back, and it's in her liver. And she knows that her, her time is short. They don't know exactly what they can get done or not. Part of the struggle there is internally going, God, where are you? Where are you now? I like that one, the one translation where it says, where is now your God? Because at this point in time in the situation that I'm in, there's this concept of going, where's God? What's happening? In fact, every week when Russell or Hal or Robin or other people stand up and pray for the church, part of what they're praying is, we want to see God act here. We want to see God act in his grace, to grow in his grace, because we want to be able to say, see, God worked. And it would be a big discouragement if we don't see that in the end, of God bringing other people in, the church growing, and all. okay. That's part of it. It might be cancer. It might be suffering in the, it, the shootings that happened. God, where were you? What happened? How do we do this? So this is the problem, whether it's the outside world or internally, and it might be things like the suffering of our own kids. Uh, when my kids don't do things that I think, I'm like, oh, God, you know, whatever. We go, God, where are you? Take care of my kids. Protect my kids. Provide for my kids. We want to see that. So we have this struggle, or what I call the problem, when we, we see before us that God may be at work, but we don't really know for sure, and we, tr- we struggle with that. The rest of the psalm deals with this problem. How do we bring God glory in hard times? Where is God now? As we've been talking about this whole concept of a wake-up call, if you've been in the last few weeks with Ecclesiastes and a wake-up call, in some ways this is the same, except this, a lot of the, the writer of Ecclesiastes, he was looking at his own things going, I think everything is vanity, I think life is worthless, whatever. This is also internal, but it's kind of the negative side of going, I'm not even sure God is there. What's going on? And is he really real? And so as we think about that this morning... I want to say that there is a God, even for my friend that had breast cancer. I told her, I said, you have, we were talking a little bit about the why. I said, you, God's prepared you your whole life to demonstrate his glory in this moment. As she's facing her possible death, I think God is using that and has used her whole life to be ready to deal with that. 
Um, and so I want us to see just some things that are in this psalm where the psalmist is dealing with this problem of the fact that um, we don't always know. So here's what it says. Verse 3. Our God is in the heavens, and he does all he pleases. In reality, that's the answer. Where is God? He's in heaven, and he does whatever he wants to do. Um, Now, we pull that apart because that's kind of a quick, easy answer, and we're going to hear gladly in the rest of the psalm, just here's the quick, easy answer. But the quick, easy answer really is God is in heaven. What does that mean? It means that he's, we use this word, transcendent. It means that he's not us. We pray to God. We sing songs to God. We pray to God personally. Sometimes we act like God's our buddy. But God isn't our buddy. Um, he's our friend. But he's not this you know, light thing. God is transcendent. He's other. He's holy. He's perfect. He's different than us. And that's what it means when it says he's in heaven. He's not just hanging here. He's with us in, that, in one sense, but... He's not limited to our space and time. He is in heaven. And then it says he does what he pleases. Now, that does not mean that it is just... Uh, what's, uh, it's not arbitrary. But what that means is that while he's in heaven, that he can do the things that please his will. As a perfect holy God, he can look around and say, this is what needs to be done. Okay? And uh, our shorter catechism puts it this way. What are the decrees of God? Question number seven. The decrees of God are his eternal purpose, what he decides to do, according to the counsel of his own will, not you and me, whereby for his own glory, that's what we're talking about, he has foreordained whatever comes to pass. This concept of God knows best and God who is holy and perfect makes decisions and that he doesn't even need to ask us our opinion. In some of that. The, the Westminster Confession says this in chapter 4, that God pleased to create. Whatever God pleases, he pleased to create. It says in chapter 8 that God pleased to ordain Jesus to be our Savior. In chapter 10, that he ordained life in those that he wanted to become his children. It pleased him to enlighten us and to give us hearts of flesh. So this concept of God can do what he pleases, he, cre- he pleases to create, he pleases to send a savior, he pleases to redeem us as his own people. God who is in heaven does what he pleases. Okay, that's the fact. God can do whatever he pleases in a way you could say, okay, that's it, we're done, that's the answer. Thankfully, the psalmist does not stop there, but goes on and struggles with this a little bit more. Um, The second point, so that was point one, that here's the answer, verse three. The second point, though, that the psalmist makes is he starts talking about the idols of this world. If you look at verse four, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes that do not see, ears that do not hear, noses that do not smell, hands that do not feel, feet that do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throats, and all those that make them become like them, and so do all those that trust in them. Okay, now it's easy to look around us. We don't, there aren't very many, there are people in this world, but there are not very many people we know that physically worship a little stone statue or something, okay? But what I want you to ask yourself is, what does the world around you worship? And then even more importantly, what do you at times worship? Might be family. 
It might be power. It might be providing for your family. It might be wealth. It might be everybody liking you or prestige or whatever. I don't know. And part of, you know, we, we talk about making Sunday a special day, the Lord's Day. We want to have time to not do our normal things every Sunday. We want to set it aside for God. Part of that is that you can take whatever you heard in church or in Bible reading and think about it some. So today, if you have some free time, I want you to think about, what's my idol? Maybe you know off the top of your head. But if you're not sure, think about, what do I turn to to sustain me? Or what do I give glory to rather than God? And I want us to think about that a little bit because I know it's not an idol of stone, but it's something. And what this scripture says is that basically idols will fail you. There's an interesting story in um, 1 Samuel 5, and I'll turn to it real quick and share this with you. 1 Samuel 5, um, there's a story of Dagon, and here's what happens. Uh, 1 Samuel 5, verse 1, the Philistines captured the ark of God. Now, you've got to understand, if you remember in the Old Testament, there was this temple, and in the very center of the temple was this ark. You've heard about from Raiders of the Lost Ark. Okay, maybe that's all you know about it. But there were actually poles. You weren't even supposed to touch it. You carried it with these special poles. There were special things inside. It was beautiful. It had angels and all this kind of stuff. It kind of was the physical representation of where you came to worship. They weren't supposed to worship it, but where it went... They were going, okay, God's around, okay? Um, and so these people, the Philistines, the enemies of God, captured the ark in a battle. And they brought it to Ebenezer, to Ashbod, and the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon, their god, and set it up beside Dagon. They were like, okay, we got two gods now. We got their god and we got our god. That's a great day. And the next day, the people of Asherod woke up early and behold, Dagon had fallen face down on the ground before the ark of the Lord. A little weird. So they took Dagon and they put him back up where he belonged. But when they rose up the next morning, he had fallen face down on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head and both his hands were cut off at the threshold. And Dagon had fallen down, and only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who entered the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashad to this day. And the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashad, and he terrified them and afflicted them with tumors and Ashad and its territory. And the men of Ashad saw how things were, and they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us. His hand is against us and against Dagon our God. And so they gathered it together and sent it back. Okay, I just love that story because you can see this you know, huge statue probably was, and here's this little ark, and it falls down, they set it up, falls down again, and it's all chopped up into pieces. Well, that's what this passage in Psalm uh, 115 is saying about the idols, that they're nothing, and we can't trust them. So the question is, where's your God? And the psalmist is saying, here's the truth. God's in heaven, and he does whatever he pleases. But if you have idols, realize they're really trash. They don't do anything. They don't help you with anything. They don't solve your problems. If you're looking to them to make your life better, it's not going to work. And not only that, it says um, in verse, sorry, wrong, wrong. Um, those who make them will become like them, so do all who trust in them. It's really saying if you think you're going to trust in this or that or the other thing to save you, 
to be that God for you, it, you're going to become that way, worthless, and don't do that. And so that's, that's answer number one is, or answer number two is, answer number one is God in control. God does what he pleases. Answer number two is the idols don't mean anything and don't really aren't alive and can't really serve you. But he doesn't stop there. He also points out that um, the positive side of things, and that's really the rest of chapter 100, of 115. Let's look at this real fast. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. Who is Israel? So we had the statement of fact. God is in control. He's in heaven. We have the point that idols don't work. And now the positive side. And he says, O Israel, trust in the Lord. Who in that time was Israel? Israel was the people of God, the recognized people of God. Who is that today? We're not the country Israel, but we are the people of God. So this verse is saying to you, trust in the Lord. That's part of the answer. When you don't feel like God's always present, trust in the Lord. And then it says this. Trust in the Lord, be their help and their shield. Now, 10 years ago, there weren't very many illustrations of shields. But nowadays, we have all these Marvel comics, and all these guys have the cool shields. This is the Captain America guy who has his shield, and that shield protects him. And he can do all these great things with it. Uh, not, none of us, I don't think anybody has ever used, anybody done that medieval time thing where you use this? We don't do that. But a shield was a very, very important tool to say, um, we, it, it protects us, it keeps us. So this is saying, trust in the Lord, people of God, because God is your help and shield. And then it says this, the house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. Who's the house of Aaron? The priests. The leadership of the people. So your elders and your pastor. This is saying to them, trust in the Lord. He is your help and shield. And then it goes on to say this. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. That means anybody else who, if you're not, see yourself as part of the church of God, you fear the Lord, trust in him. And this should be our good news to the people in our community. Come join us at Vintage Grace. We trust in the Lord. We fear him. He is our help and shield. When times are hard, in fact, this is the easiest way of outreach is when a neighbor or someone is going through a really hard time, we come to them and say, I don't, I don't have an answer for your cancer or anything else other than I trust in the Lord. I don't have an easy answer for this problem in your life. But when I have those problems, I trust in the Lord. He is my help and shield. So, but then it goes on. It says this. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both great, small, and great. A lot of times we might think of this word blessing and we don't really think very much about it. But the concept of blessing is where, especially with God, or start patriarchs and fathers would come and bless their children. We saw this in the story of Abraham and his sons. He blessed one of his sons in a special way. Often it was the firstborn son was blessed in a certain way. 
But fathers, when they were especially getting close to dying, they would bless their children. It's kind of like saying, here, I think God's going to do this for you. I want this for you. I predict this for you, whatever it was. And so this is saying that God is going to do that, that God is going to bless us. So you've got this problem. We're supposed to give God glory, but we've got this problem. Where right now is God for us? And part of the answer is he blesses us. You need to think about that because it's easy in the middle of a problem to forget what your blessings are. Um, You can have a problem in your family and forget how your wife has blessed you. You can have a problem at work and forget what a blessing it is to have a job. You can have a problem in life like cancer and forget the many years that God has already given you. Now, that doesn't mean they're not still hard times. And it's not mean that we don't still ask the question, God, where are you? But our minds should go, wait a minute. He has blessed us, and this is saying he will bless us. He will bless us. And it speaks to all three categories, the people of God, people of Israel, the, the house of Aaron, and each one that fears God. They will have the blessing of God. So that was verse, took us down through verse 13. Bless those who fear the Lord, both great and small. And then it says this, May the Lord give you increase, your and your, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. This is a sweet thing for us because many of us are parents. We want well for our children. This is saying as we go through hard times in life, whether you lose a job or you have sickness or whatever it is, we say, first of all, we trust in the Lord. Second of all, we know the Lord will bless us. And not just bless us, but bless us and our children. And we are thrilled to come and say that, that God will bless us. And it's not just any God that will bless us. It's the God who made heaven and earth, who made everything will bless us. Verse 16, the heavens are the Lord's heavens, and the earth is given to the children of men. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. God promises to bless both great and small. All who fear him. We are called to bless the Lord, extol him, to lift up his name, both now and forevermore. We're called to fear the Lord, to bless his name, because he is our help and shield. We're called to proclaim his glory because of his blessings on us. We're called to trust in him because he is our help and shield. He, it says, will increase us and our children. So, going back all the way to the beginning, how do we give God glory? Why do we give God glory? Because of his mercy and truth in Jesus Christ. Because of his love and faithfulness in Jesus Christ. The word there is steadfast. It doesn't move his love and faithfulness in Jesus Christ. And so I come to you this morning and I say, give God glory. And you struggle with that and say, where is God now in this situation? Come back and say, I will trust in him. He does bless me and I will bless him forevermore. Why? Because of what Jesus has done for us. And in a minute, we'll be celebrating communion. That's what communion is. It's a physical sign and seal, we call it. A sign physically of what Christ has done for us. Every week, the pastor stands up and he breaks that bread. And we see that, and we should go, oh yeah, that's Jesus 
who was broken for me. And those times when I don't want to trust, this reminds us of what he's done for us. When we have looked at our lives and said, I don't know what's going on, we can say, this helps us because it's a sign and seal. The, the juice, and somebody asked me last week, why the, why the, the wine? The wine was a, a bitter wine in those days, and it was the bitterness of Jesus going to the cross. It wasn't a sweet wine of celebration, but it was a bitter wine of suffering and death. His body being broken and his blood shed for us is what this is a sign and seal of. So we celebrate every week God's mercy, God's kindness to us, and God's faithfulness in our lives. We're also coming up to Easter, and I want to think you to think about it this way. We celebrate Easter because of our hope, and we celebrate Easter saying we look to Jesus. But I want us to think of it this way. Suffering and problems in life and questioning ourselves comes to everyone. And when we are there, we want to say Jesus' death and resurrection offers hope to his people. So when we're suffering, Jesus offers hope. Because Jesus was not undone by suffering, we don't have to be undone by suffering. So as you think about inviting someone to church on Easter, you're saying to them, there are times when I struggle in my life to give God glory, but I do because of who he is. And as you struggle in your life, come join us and see why we glorify him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this day and for your mercy and your kindness to us. I pray for your people that they might know your love and your kindness. I pray for each of us when we're discouraged that we might be encouraged by your faithfulness to us. And Father, as we come now and celebrate the Lord's Supper, may we know you better, may we love you better, may we have a better understanding of who you are in our lives and trust you and bless you more every day. In Christ's name we pray, amen.